So Hollywood loves reboots right now. Uh, didn't know if you knew this. Maybe you're wondering what a reboot is. I don't want to assume. Uh, so it's when uh, there's a, a TV show or a movie that uh, it takes the brand of a popular franchise but tries to restart it, basically, to pretend like nothing that you know about it has ever happened before, and let's reboot it. And I, I hesitate to say that it's not always done for the most artistic reasons as opposed to Hollywood knowing that we will buy tickets and go see them. Some reboots are better than others. Take, for instance, um, the original Tobey Maguire Spider-Man trilogy, right? Good movies, great movies. Um, formative for junior high age Scott. Um, so sometimes reboots aren't that great, like the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man reboot. Sometimes they're better, like the um, what, Tom Holland Spider-Man reboot more recently. Sometimes they're really good, like the animated Miles Morales multiverse Spider-Man reboot. We have so many Spider-Man movies, friends, and now Spidey and his amazing friends have uh, absorbed my son into its culture. So we just, really this is a sermon about needing more superheroes than Spider-Man. Um, so no, sometimes it's helpful to, to start the story over, right? Um, to level set, to play with expectations, maybe to mess with what we think we know. That's what Luke does in the beginning of, of his gospel. That's what Luke does in the beginning of his gospel. We're in a series right now called When Love Comes Down, and we're taking a look at each of the four gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're taking a closer look at the way they begin to tell the Jesus story, because each story about Jesus is unique and different, and each beginning is very unique and different, and gives us a lot of clues as to the kind of Jesus they seek to introduce us to. And so let's begin today in, in chapter 1, verse 1 of Luke's gospel, where it says this, many people have already applied themselves to the task of compiling an account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used what the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed down to us. So he's talking about over decades. This is coming, you know, about 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. The story has been told and heard, and, and different written accounts have been offered. But now Luke says, Now after having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, I have also decided to write a carefully ordered account for you, most honorable Theophilus. So he's writing this to somebody. I want you to have confidence in the soundness of the instruction you have received. I find this introduction interesting, especially that last line. I want you to have confidence in the soundness of the instruction you have received. Because in that statement, if you take it a step further, it's clear that Luke thinks that somehow the story about Jesus is incomplete. That as he surveys all of the different spoken and written accounts, he says, ah, it's not quite the way I would tell it. In fact, I love this language of having confidence in the soundness of the instruction because I think the honest truth is that Luke is here to mess with the story that we think we know. The whole reason he's writing this down is because he realizes that though there are different stories and all of them are helpful in different ways, he thinks there are some things that maybe we've lost, and so it's time for a reboot. So the story continues in, in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to read some and then paraphrase because um, Luke is lengthy and verbose, which is maybe why I like him so much. You're not supposed to laugh that hard at that joke. 
During the rule of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. They were both righteous before God, blameless in their observance of all the Lord's commandments and regulations. So the story continues from there in this Zechariah and Elizabeth. Remember those names, Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is an older couple. Zechariah is a priest. Elizabeth, his wife, is descended from Aaron, who was that brother of Moses, chief priest of the Israelites following the Exodus. So this is a very priestly couple who are in their old age and have been unable to have children. And we'll talk about that in a, in a moment. So Zechariah is going to the temple, and he's going to perform this religious rite ritual that would be like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him as a priest, right? Big deal. And as he approaches and goes within the temple to perform this religious service, an angel named Gabriel meets him, right? Totally unexpected uh, for Zechariah. And the angel Gabriel offers him what should be very good news and says, guess what? Elizabeth is going to have a baby. And Zechariah, not unlike Abraham, generations before him, goes, what are you talking about? That's not possible. That's crazy, and so the angel says, fine, you know what? You don't get to talk anymore. <laughs> Literally, this is what happens. He, he, he shuts up Zechariah's mouth, and Zechariah is rendered mute uh, for the remainder of Elizabeth's pregnancy. He exits the temple, can't say anything. He's playing kind of charades, you know. You know, and, and they don't, they're like, whoa, something weird happened in there, right? But he can't say anything. The only one who can speak to this is Elizabeth. So I want us to notice a couple of things in this first portion of the story. First of all, I find it fascinating that, that Luke begins not with Mary and Joseph, but actually with the birth story of a man named John, whom we would come to know as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. You know, in every other gospel account, John shows up as an adult. And we talked about John in previous weeks in here. John's the one that wears the camel fur and eats wild honey and locusts, right? That John, don't invite him to the party, John. He's kind of weird, John, right? John that out in the wilderness and preparing the way for the Lord, making paths straight, that John, the one who baptizes Jesus, that John. Here, Luke gives him an origin story, a birth story, focuses our attention on his parents and their story. That's interesting that Luke thinks there are these stories that have been yet untold that we need to exhume and remember. Zechariah, like I said, he's this, he's this priest, and he's going to this once-in-a-lifetime experience, and yet he is wholly surprised to actually meet the presence of God's angel in there. And not just that, but to, be, to receive life-changing good news. Isn't that irony intended, right? The fact that we have this priest who, of all people, should be most willing to go, well, of course I'd see an angel in the Holy of Holies. Of course this would happen on this most important day of my lifetime, but instead... He says, what? This isn't supposed to happen. I'm supposed to say some words and do some things and then go home. Gabriel, what are you doing here? What do you mean Elizabeth is pregnant? And then the silence he's left with is just deafening. The priest is shut up and unable to proclaim the good news that he's just been given. You know, it... it occurs to me that preparing the way for Jesus, according to the gospel of Luke, means challenging the old established ways of religion as usual. There's a reason why Luke starts with a priest and immediately renders him silent, because Luke's gospel is not here for the people that are inside the building. 
Luke's gospel is not here for the people who are comfortable in the temple. Luke's gospel is here for everybody else. Quite frankly, Luke's gospel is here to make people like you and me uncomfortable, people who might sit comfortably in a pew on a Sunday morning. Luke's gospel is asking us to consider what it might mean for us to stop going through the motions and actually take seriously this faith that we proclaim has the ability to move mountains or bring good news or even to invite heaven upon earth. Luke asks this, what if Christmas messes up our expectations of church? What if this Christmas story is not as neat and tidy as we want it to be? What if it doesn't support all the things that we want it to support? In fact, what if it challenges those things? What if it renders us silent? Church in America today, as we continue to lose our voice, I wonder if that's not the angels shutting up the priests saying, you have been rendered mute because you refuse to accept the good news that we are here to bring to you and through you. So guess what? You won't talk anymore, at least not for a while, not while we are birthing something different and something better. Hmm, that wasn't in the script but it's still a good thought. So the story continues, and, and, and we, we uh, focus more on Elizabeth. Let's talk about Elizabeth for a moment. It says, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered why he was in the sanctuary for such a long time, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They'd realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he gestured to them and couldn't speak. And when he completed the days of his priestly service, he returned on home. Afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. She kept to herself for five months, saying, This is the Lord's doing. He has shown his favor to me by removing my disgrace among other people. Elizabeth wouldn't let me go this week. This is the Lord's doing, she says. He has shown his favor to me by removing my disgrace among other people. I told you Luke came here to mess with us. So the reason Elizabeth says that, you have to understand the context that she lives in and the theological context of her people. In those days, and especially for a priestly family like theirs, uh, the Jewish communities were driven largely by a theology developed in the book of Deuteronomy that basically goes by like this. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Right? It's just that simple. Faithful people are met with God's rich blessings. Unfaithful people are punished as a result. So no, if you were to accept that contextual uh, place that, that Elizabeth is in, and then you lay on top of that, this is a woman who in her day is um, seen as predominantly a child producer, right? Women were um, sometimes thought of as property, sometimes thought of as nice adornment to a man's household, but almost always the chief purpose was to produce children, and, and she being from the line of Aaron and being married to a priest, I mean, you know, she's just set up for God to bless her. And so then when year after year goes by, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and the answer continues to be no. Maybe no one ever said it to her face directly, but I hate to believe they probably did. Maybe they just said it loud enough behind her back into each other that the whispers made it to her ears, but they would have called her unrighteous, unfaithful. Something is going on there. We just know it because otherwise Elizabeth would have a baby. 
And, and, and it hits me personally because uh, my wife and I, Reagan, uh, who's also a pastor, um, she pastors a church in Canada. You don't know her. Um, <laughs> so, so we walked through infertility for, for years. Um, priestly family. We... Uh, we didn't receive the, the, the shame, not directly from our faith communities, but there's just that pit in your stomach that says, God, would you remove this disgrace? And there's that constant asking of why. And there's the people, the good churchy people trying to offer helpful answers that are just so unhelpful. This is also not in the script, but, but church, please don't say to somebody, oh, I just know God's going to work in God's own time. Please don't say to somebody, I just know that this blessing is, is going to be in store for you, because you don't. You don't. Okay? What I would hope is that we could be a community of faith with a theology and a practice that can hold Elizabeth's in our world and Zechariah's in our world so that they don't have to feel that disgrace, whether intended or not. Because when I read this story, when I read Elizabeth's word, my heart just breaks for because what should be a moment of pure celebration is honestly just a moment of relief. Because finally she can live into this identity that everyone has been placing upon her, rather than us acknowledging the truth that whom, whatever your family looks like or whatever life or, 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 whatever, or whatever path your story takes, that you are still a beloved child of God. And no, we don't have all the answers and we can't wave a wand and make everything better, but my God, can we at least hold each other in that pain, in that in-between, in that lack of knowing, and not try to give easy answers, but to instead say, I don't understand it, but I am here for you, and I'm walking with you, and I'll sit with you as long as it takes. I don't really know what else to say about that. But I think Elizabeth asks us to have our hearts break with hers, and maybe that's how Luke is messing with us in this Christmas story. So the story continues, and it says, when Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. So finally, we meet this holy family. Luke gets us there eventually, and this angel Gabriel shows up to Mary and, and announces the, the pregnancy that she has been blessed with, which would have been wholly frightening to a teenage girl. And so Mary doesn't understand it quite so much either, but I think the angel Gabriel is more compassionate towards her than Zechariah because Zechariah should have known better, and Mary is so young. And so ultimately, Mary says, okay, I'm the Lord's servant. She expresses this humility. And so then she goes, and she, time speeds up a little bit, and she goes to visit uh, Elizabeth, her older cousin. Do any of you have a crazy older cousin in your life? I do. If you don't, you should get one. They're a lot of fun. <laughs> crazy older cousins are the best. Elizabeth is Mary's kind of crazy older cousin. And it says, 
Mary got up and hurried to a city in the Judean highlands. She entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And with a loud voice, she blurted out, God has blessed you above all women, and he has blessed the child you carry. Why do I have this honor that the mother of my Lord should come to meet me? As soon as I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Happy is she who believed the Lord would fulfill the promises he made to her. I love Elizabeth's energy here. She strikes me as having that crazy older cousin energy in the best possible way. And I love that it's here in the chapter one of Luke's gospel in all of Elizabeth's extra-ness, right? She is extra. She is the one that Luke says announces Christ as Lord. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? If you blink, you miss it. But she says, why do I have this honor that the mother of my capital L, curios in Greek, Lord, should come to meet me? That is a title reserved for at least a king, if not God's self. It's not Peter. It's not Joseph. It's not John. None of them held the truth that she did. The announcement of the Lord was something that only Mary and Elizabeth could sense in this moment because it was the waters of their wombs that would bring salvation to the earth. In fact, Luke will only allow Zechariah, get this church, to speak again when he affirms the name given to their son by Elizabeth at John's birth. That's the moment Zechariah gets to speak again when he uplifts what Elizabeth has already said. And then, then Luke takes it a step further and bookends the entire gospel story by having it be women and only women approaching the empty tomb to witness the resurrection made real. I wonder if Luke is messing with our understanding of the gospel and trying to uplift the message of the divine feminine that he felt had been lost along the way. Wow, that's mighty woke of you, Luke. There's a lot of things not in the scripts this morning, friends. Okay. <laughs> Luke tells us that the news, Jesus is Lord, is quite literally wrapped up in Elizabeth's womb. Luke is not here to tell the story that we think we know. This is not about wise men and kings and other dudes in position of power. This is about Mary and Elizabeth and the story they have to tell. In fact, we keep going and we hear more from Mary's own mouth. She begins to sing in response, this song that we now call the Magnificat. And there are many, 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 many versions of this song floating out there. You've likely heard it before, whether you know it or not, but I want to read one portion for us this morning. She says this, God shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors God as God. God has shown strength with God's arm, God has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. God has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. You might recognize these lyrics from Ariana Grande's newest Christmas song, Pull the Powerful Down from Their Thrones. That's a joke that no one laughed at. <laughs> You're like, really? Is that the new single? No. It's probably another Santa baby that nobody asked for. 
So I joke, but this is not a Christmas song that we don't think of this as like a Christmas song. Pull the mighty down from their thrones, send the rich away empty-handed. But really, what if we allowed these lyrics to inform our vision of the mother Mary just as much as we tend to overemphasize the meek and mild humble servant who says, God, pull the mighty down from their thrones. Lift up the lowly, send the rich away empty-handed. It's good news that she shares, if we listen closely. It is good news for the hungry and the lowly and the poor, but church, hear me, it is tough news for the powerful and the arrogant and the rich. And I'm careful not to say it's bad news. It's still good news. It's just tougher good news for the powerful and the arrogant and the rich. Low and empty is the source of our salvation for the high and the mighty and the wealthy, my friends. Low and empty is the source of our salvation. And so then Luke takes his red sharpie and begins underlining this truth as he continues into chapter 2, building upon Mary's song. And after we have this wonderful nativity scene that I'm not going to read because I don't know, maybe you'll hear it again on Christmas Eve, we pick up in verse 8. Not only is it the message that Mary carries, but Luke says there are different kinds of messengers in this story as well. In verse 8, it says, Nearby shepherds were living in the fields, guarding their sheep at night. The Lord's angels stood over them, and the Lord's glory shone around them, and they were terrified. So what happens next is the angels, they announce, guess what? The Savior of the world has been born, and he's just over there in Bethlehem. Go find him in the manger. So the shepherds do. They leave behind their flocks. They go, and they look for the, for the baby boy. They find the holy family there, and they go, wow, hallelujah. And they leave rejoicing, sharing this good news as they exit the city of Bethlehem. And it says, the people who heard them speak, it says, quote, everyone was amazed at what the shepherds said. Everyone was amazed. And I wonder, I wonder if they were amazed at the message or at the messengers. Because Luke chooses shepherds for a very clear reason. He wants us to think of shepherds in the way that people 2,000 years ago would have thought of shepherds. Shepherds were men, a lot of times young men, who worked well beyond the reaches of town for good reason, because they were viewed with eyes of suspicion. They weren't thought very highly of. Sometimes they were former criminals, and that's why they were viewed with suspicion. But shepherds were not the cute little three-year-olds dolled up in the, in the robes with the staff, right? These were the people that you would walk across the other side of the road if you saw them coming because you just didn't know what to think about shepherds. Maybe people are amazed not so much that they're hearing good news, but who they are hearing it from. Imagine if you were stopping for gas and three young men who had just gotten off work at the local oil change place covered in grease and grime and God knows what else approached you and said, you will never believe it. We just saw the Savior of the world. His family is from Corsicana. And if you are from Corsicana, I'm so sorry. I had to pick one. I had to pick one. It's where I got my COVID shots. I love Corsicana. But truly, if you were encountered by these young men late at night at the gas station, you don't know them. They look like the kind of people that culturally you have been taught to stay away from. And suddenly they're telling you good news that is supposed to change not just the world, but your life. Do you hear it? Are you amazed? Or are you amazed? Is Luke messing with you yet? Here's where Luke doesn't just step on our toes, but he challenges the way that we see each other. 
Now, I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else when I say this, my friend. So long as the poor are a source of our pity rather than the source of all our good news, we have failed to be captured by the gospel. I'm going to say it again. So long as the poor are just a source for our pity rather than the source of all of our salvation, we have, been fail- we have failed to be captured by the gospel. Luke is here to mess with us. He does not want us to have a comfortable Christmas. He does not want us to set a nativity on our piano and then to let the rest of our house be unchanged. Luke is here to change everything that we understand about not just the story of Jesus, but what it means for our lives, because what he hopes it means is something deeper and more significant than perhaps we first thought. Something tangible that lifts up the lowly and brings the powerful down from their thrones. And so Luke introduces us to the Jesus story like this. The old priest Zechariah is literally made to be silent. The teen mom Mary is honored above all others. The crazy older cousin Elizabeth is the first to recognize and announce the truth of what is to come and who Jesus is. The unwed mother of Jesus praises God as the one who has come not to restore what we've known but to redeem all that is broken. The priest is only permitted to speak again when he affirms the truth proclaimed by his wife. The Son of God is birthed into an unorthodox, seemingly unimportant family, and the messengers chosen to proclaim that love has come down are the same people we all too easily look down upon. Welcome to the Jesus story according to Luke. May it ever be so. Amen.